Thank you, Lindsay. That was wonderful. Um, I, I, my name is Albie, and I'm very happy to be here. Jared uh, helps me a lot. I, I also um, work at the seminary, and so Jared is my alumni uh, president. He's one of my alumni officers, and so he does a lot of work for me, and so he's a wonderful man, and you're very fortunate and blessed to have him. Um, today is kind of like a, your stand-in is like a, a donkey in a Kentucky Derby. You only got me for one day. So it, it, won't be, it won't be so bad, and we'll, we'll get through it together. Um, allow me a bit of an introduction uh, as far as time-wise today, because I want to share with you a story that's impacted my life quite a bit um, as far as when it, talking about missions and the, and the Great Commission and, and that which we're called to do as you think about your Lottie Moon offering and, and all of those sort of things. And, you know, as we, we look at the new year, Many people uh, develop what we call New Year's resolutions. They have goals and things they want to accomplish. And for some reason, the world is so, so bent on this week just developing a whole new list. They're just going to revamp their life. Uh, people want to change the way they look. They, they want to change a relationship. They want to they make more money. It's going to be tough this year. You might want to scratch that one off your list. Um, but other than that, it's just there's always this need for, for material things and to to glorify ourselves. And what we find is, is that as believers, as Christians, it's almost con- it contradicts that because God calls us to, to a life many times of trials and, and going through tough times to, to serve Him and to follow Him. <clears throat> and so as we look at today, I want us to think about as we go into this new year, maybe just thinking about how we are going to embrace conflict because that's what the world has for those of us who trust in Christ. And so I'll start out with a story of Sharif. Sharif is a, was a five-year-old boy. He's still living today. But uh, Sharif is a five-year-old boy, and he's growing up in a Muslim country. It's about 80 to 90% Muslim. It's a little farming community. And when he was five years old, he was sent off, as most Muslim boys are, to a school where he is to learn the Quran. He is to learn the ways of his family and the ways of the, of the language. And like many five-year-old boys, he's, he's very inquisitive. He asks a lot of questions. And as he begins to study the Quran and learn about Muhammad, he begins to ask his teacher more and more questions. You know? And the fact is, is that within this culture, within this religion, you're not to question the Quran. You're not to question the teachings of the Quran. And so his teacher labeled him a sinner boy, which is like the worst thing that a Muslim boy could, could be named. And she took him home to his father, and she told him that she thought that his family was cursed, that he had a center boy within his family, and so the father was very angry and very disturbed, and so basically he did what many, many would do in this case uh, as Muslim fathers. He disowned his child from his family. Tough thing for a five, six, seven-year-old boy to go through. His mother talked, him in, talked the father into allowing the son to remain on the property. They put him in a shack out back, and basically no one would have anything to do with him. His mother would bring him food and water three times a day. He would just ramble through the community, wasn't going to school, he would just, you know, no one would talk to him, no one in his family. One day he's sitting at a bus stop, and that's it, say there was like 90% Muslim. This country did allow certain missionaries into the country to witness to non-Muslim people, and so there was a non-Muslim population. This particular missionary, his name was Tom, had decided that he was going to finally witness to the Muslim people. And he saw this young boy, and he felt that he was disturbed, and so he began to strike up a conversation with him, invite him to his home. At his home, his wife fed him, I mean, gave him his first cup of coffee, fed him some American food, and they began to share the, the gospel with him. They gave him a New Testament in his language, and he took it home, and in the back of his shed, you can imagine this young boy 
on his own. No one to take care of him. He's reading through this New Testament. And he does not even get up. He doesn't even fall asleep. He's, he reads through it all night. And then as he's reading through it, he, he begins to, to recognize and he goes to John 3.16 and he's reading all these things and sees how so much God loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. <clears throat> and as, he, as he's reading this, he becomes more drawn to this missionary. Well, this missionary invites him to his church. It's a, kind of a secret little church. Goes to the church, but happens that a neighbor of his father sees him come out of this church, and he goes and tells him the father and his brothers, as the boy's coming home, tells him that he is never to go to a Christian church. Anything that he needs to know about Christianity, he will teach him. And so what he does is he beats the young boy to teach him, and beats him pretty badly. He says, never go again. Well, the young boy, he said he would try not to go, but he couldn't promise. And the, as many said, he was drawn to that, that New Testament. He was drawn to the Scriptures. So he went again. And again, they saw him leave the church, and this time his father had his brothers just strip him of all his clothes, beat him till he was almost bloody and dead, and they chained him to a pole. That night, his mother came to him, had a few coins in her hand and some clothes, and she told him and unchained him and said that he needed to leave the city because his father was coming to kill him. Now, he had just received Christ, and now he's young, he's on his own, what is he going to do? He's going to embrace the conflict. He's going to embrace that which we so desperately many times want to avoid is being persecuted for the gospel. But we're going to learn very on, early on in the scriptures today, is chapter today is Exodus. It's going to be in chapter 1. We're going to see just how very early on believers in the gospel, believers in God, were going to face the conflict. They were going to embrace the conflict. We're reading in Exodus chapter 1. It says, Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man in his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, God, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, and Joseph died, all his brothers, and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest any multiply, and it happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us and so go up out of the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel, so the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter and with hard bondage, and mortar and brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of was Sepra and the name of the other Puah. And he said, When you do the duties of the midwife for the Hebrew women, and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God dealt with them, dealt with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter 
you shall save alive. Now we find here great tragedy taking place. We find here the Hebrew people growing within 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 this within this destruction. What we find here is that we we look and see a community of people rising up. They've they've somewhat lost their leader. They're enslaved in Egypt. Egypt, in Egypt. We have a pharaoh who's come to power. Maybe a new group of Egyptians, and we will see later on that this pharaoh did not know Joseph. But what we find here, more importantly, is that we have a nation who is reading, and we find that they're reading these names, and people are saying, well, what do these names mean? What is the significance? Well, the significance here is this. Even though many of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of them had died, the nation of Hebrew, the Hebrew nation, the Israelites, were still flourishing. We see that taking place. And so as we look at this, one of the first things I want us to look at is, is how can we embrace the conflict? The first point I want you to read today is God blesses his people when they trust in his promises. God blesses his people when they trust in his promises. As we look through and we're reading these names, we're going, what is the significance here? Why is this? Well, it's just to show us that even though they're right now without a leader, even though that they're in bondage and slavery, that they're still what? They're, and in there, and there's death going on. They're still flourishing. Look at the key word in this first set of verses. Verse 7, it says, But... Although there have been death, although Joseph is gone, although Abraham and Isaac and all of them were gone, but the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Where would, where would they get the strength to do this? They're in slavery. They're in bondage. How would they be able to do this such thing as to, grow, as to grow when they don't even know, they don't even have someone to really turn to, a leader to turn to? But what we find is, is that they, they always had God with them. God was providing for them through all their trials and all their sufferings. And what we find here is a a great tie to the first commission. We all know the great commission, but the first commission in Genesis 1.28, it says, be fruitful and multiply, grow, grow mighty, become a great nation, become a great people. And then they they know the scriptures too because they also knew that from Genesis 12, it said, 12, 1 through 3, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. They knew that a blessing was coming, that they were that they were going to be the ones who would carry forth the word of God, that they would be the ones who would have a great nation. There's a great land waiting for them, but they're sitting in bondage. They're without a leader. What will they do? And that's why they're being reminded here, but but they're they're flourishing, they're growing. And then they also would know from Genesis 15 what God had told Abraham, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years and all the nation whom they serve I will judge afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So they knew that even though they were going to be persecuted even for 400 years that they would they would struggle and be in bondage that there was someday going to be a promise. There was something that was much greater for them that they would look to. And so what we find here as a group of people, God's people, relying on Him, even though they don't know what the future, they can't see it, they don't, they don't know where it's going to be, but they know there's a land for them, they know that they're going, they know that they're looking for something that God is going to give them. Well, today, is that not really our lives too? Do we not know that God has promised great things for us? Do we not know that He's a promise in eternity for us through His Son, Jesus Christ? Do we trust that? Do we, do we trust in those promises? You know, so many times we sit in churches and we claim Jesus as our Savior. 
But do we claim him as our Lord? Is he Lord over our life? Do we, do we trust him in all things? Do we, do we trust his promises? Do we know that what he promises will be true? Well, these people did, and they were the great example because nothing was ta- they were in bondage. What? It's like, it can't happen. For 400 years, I've got to go through this. But they were multiplying, and they were growing greatly. They were doing exactly what God had called them to do, even though they were in bondage. But the bigger thing here is that the thing is, is that they knew they trusted in God. I have a friend who had been off to a seminary one time across the seas, was in a, another Muslim country, and he was teaching the scriptures to these people, and these, these few men had come, maybe 10 or 15 of them, they'd come to learn the Bible and all the great promises that God has in these scriptures. And they studied them for a week and a half, and as it got to the end, they were getting ready to go home, and he was giving his, my friend was closing with his last little sermon to them and talking to them, and he says, you know, all these things, you've got to put trust in Christ. You've got to trust in the gospel. You have to trust in the grace of the cross. And he was telling all these things, and they, and they knew that they had learned much about how a lot of times following Christ is, is suffering. And one of the young men in the back raised up, and he, he says, Pastor, he says, of all the things that you've taught me and all the things that I've learned over these past couple of weeks, he says, if I go back and teach them to my people, he says, I will surely die. And my friend was kind of sitting there going, okay, I've been here a week and a half, and there was an eerie silence. You could hear a pin drop. And he says, nothing was being said. Everyone was sitting there so quiet. And he says, finally, this young man grabbed his Bible, lifted it up with his hand, and he says, but I will preach the word. I will preach the word. And the fact is, is that the thing is, is that we as a people, as a church, can be just like these Hebrew people. We can know that times are tough. We can know that there's persecution waiting for us. But we also know the promises of the cross. We know the promises of the resurrection. We know that God has an eternity for us. And so for that, we can face anything that stands before us. The church can grow even when there's death. The church can grow even when there's trials. And that's exactly what is taking place here. So God blesses us when we trust in His promises. But more so, I want us to look at the second thing, is that God provides for His people when they face oppression. Now things are going to, to, to ramp up a little bit. They've recognized that they, there's been death, and they, they're really kind of without a leader at this point in time. But it says here that we look at verse 8, it says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Who is this new king? The old Pharaoh, he got along well with Joseph. He allowed Joseph to what? have control over all his possessions. He gave Joseph everything. And the Hebrew people had found favor in Egypt, but now there was a change in the guard. This Egyptian pharaoh had no concern. He did not even know who Joseph was, but the thing about it is if he did not know Joseph, then he did not know who. He didn't know the God of Joseph. He had no clue who he was. And the fact is, is that all he could see is that these Hebrew people were growing, weren't they? They were multiplying. They were doing what they had been commanded to do, be fruitful and multiply. This nation is growing. Genesis 12, the nation will grow, it will be blessed. But it bothers him, because what does he want? He wants his own power, and he wants his own glory. And so he is 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 bothering him that these people are growing. It says, and he said to the people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. The fact is, is that the people of God intimidated this Pharaoh. And not only were they intimidated with them, but this word here means that he had to come up with a devise a plan to suppress them, to get 
to not and to get rid of them because he enjoyed the economic prosperity they brought him, but to get rid of them, to 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 annihilate, to to make it so that they could not take away his glory. And it says here, deal shrewdly with them, almost skillfully. You know, if you think about it, you think back to Genesis, and it says that the serpent was what more cunning than the other beasts of the creation. And it also says later on that when when the fall happened, uh, God says, let us look at them, the women who are made in our image, they now know what? They now know good and evil. You ever thought about the problem of evil people? Anybody ever ask you when they come to you, they go, okay, this God that you worship, if he's so good, why is there so much evil in the world? Why is there so much death? Why is there so much destruction? Why is there so much war? And God has said it because man knows good and evil. Well, this Pharaoh right here, he knows good and evil, but what is he choosing to do? He's choosing to achieve his purposes through evil. He's going to drill, he's going to come up with a plan. He's going to devise a plan to just get rid of these, these Hebrew people. So many times it's not, not the world today. Are they not always trying to come up with a clever way to, to trick us or to, to, to make us fall, in our, fall against our faith? Think about movies. I just was watching the other day on TV a clip of a movie. This movie was going to basically make fun of how we interpret Scripture. It was basically saying, well, if Jesus said this, didn't Jesus also say this? And that's the world. The world many times wants to take the Scriptures and make them into a Rubik's Cube. And, and scramble it up so you can't fix it and make it work right. They want us to say, okay, yeah, I am confused. It, it, didn't the serpent who was more cunning say, will you surely die? Has there not always been a question about the Bible? Has there always not been a question about its truth? And here we have the same thing. This, this Pharaoh coming up with evil, he's trying to figure out how to make things work to his way. And so not only is he trying to come up with a way to to deal with them, but he comes up with a decision of how to do it. It says, not only did he deal truly with them, lest they multiply and it happen, but it says that therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. Now what you must understand, you must grasp a picture here. These Hebrew people, they're growing mighty. This is a great nation within Egypt. So what he's going to do is he wants to break their spirit. He wants to break the spirit of these people. He wants to break this idea or this trust they have in this promise that they're going to be one day taken care of and that they will be removed from this bondage. And so what he does is he says, we will afflict them. I'm not just talking about oppression where people are made to work. This would include physical abuse, almost any way they could to just make these people just absolutely break their spirit. Can you imagine working all day, just making them build, build, build? It says here they build two cities. They build and build and build and build. The guy falls down. He can barely get up. And what do they do? They whip him and make him get it back up again because he has to continue to work. They're looking to break the spirit of these people. And so what we find here is that God is growing them because it says here that they continue to multiply. Isn't that strange? That through this oppression, through this great affliction, the more Pharaoh tries to beat them down and beat them and scourge them and do everything he can to them to make them work, the more they what? They grow. They grow. They get they get body. The, the, the body grows. And so what we find here is that many times our life is a paradox. Think about the cross. Think for just a moment with me about the cross. The greatest evil act in the history of mankind was also the greatest good.
good. At the very point in time that Jesus died on that cross for our sins, everybody was trying to scheme and work and to be cunning of how to get rid of Him. But the fact is, is on that cross, He died for you and He died for me, that we may have eternal life and have life abundantly, the promise. And we have that hope and we have that, that resurrection to have that hope in. And so the more the world comes at us, the more it seeks to persecute us, the more we can grow. Like many athletes, think of athletes. We, we all like sports. How do athletes grow? They grow through praying. They grow through training. You know, that's what's happening with his people here. God is growing his people as he's training them. They're having to go through. And you have to be willing to get strong through the pain. Let me say that again. The church today has to be willing to get strong through the pain. I had another friend, and I'm trying to keep somewhat of a Great Commission theme today, another friend who went off overseas, another kind of short stance, you know, maybe a week or two. But in that week or two, he made a, a lifelong friend. and they, they, they poured over the Scriptures together. They knew the Scriptures. They were, they were going over them. And as he, as he was flying home, he knew he was going to miss his friend. And so as he's flying into Atlanta, he looks at his watch. He's been in a plane for 20 or so hours. And he looks at his watch, and he figures that his friend, back where he was, had just walked about 20 hours to his home. His home, a tent, with many children living in that tent, no running water, and a place where he had been beaten several times for trusting in Christ. My friend thought to himself, man, it is so good to be home. It's hot. I, have been in, I haven't had any air conditioning. I can't wait to get home. can't wait to see my wife. I can't wait to see my children. But he thought to himself this, and this is, this is a, a dramatic point, and it's something that we see right here in this text. As these people think, he thought to himself, he goes, who is more blessed, me? So the Egyptians made the children of Israel. And the Scriptures answer that question. The Scriptures say, blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom. The fact is, is that Jesus has told us that being persecuted for his name's sake is where the blessing is. And do we not see that here? Do you not see a glimpse of that right at the beginning of your scriptures? These people, the more they are pressed, the more they're persecuted, the more they what? The more they grow and the more they trust in God, the more they keep moving forward. It says in verse 13, So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage and mortar and brick. All their service in which they made them serve with rigor. The more he pounded on them, the more they grew. And it's because simply that God provides through our oppression. What does he provide? He provides strength. He provides wisdom. He provides counsel. All those things that you need from Him to get through. Think about the mission field. <clears throat> These people need a way to trust in God and they trust in the cross. But the third thing I want us to look at today is that God's promises are filled through the faithfulness of His people. As we look here and we, we've seen a situation where they know there's death, but there's been growth. And then not only that, but there's a new, there's a new Pharaoh who does not know Joseph. He does not know the people of God. But yet he tries to afflict them and beat them and, and break their spirit, but they continue to grow. But then we look in verse 15 that he ramps it up a little bit. They're still doing what? They're still growing. So we see again another, another key thing happen here. It says, Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives of whom the name of Bashifra and the name of the other Puah, and he said to them, 
When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. <clears throat> see it taking place? We have a Pharaoh who has nothing but his own glory in mind, and he's going to use evil to get there. And then we have God who loves his people, who's promised them nothing but good things in the future, but, it, but they also know that they're going to have to go through this oppression to get there, and they're with him, and they're holding him, and he's taking care of them. And it's almost like those old <clears throat> Rocky fight, Rocky movies. Everybody, people watch Rocky movies. Hopefully you've watched a Rocky movie. But the fact is, if you go back to the old ones, you see there's Apollo and there's Rocky. And these, it's not like the real fights on TV. These guys, they can't, even see through their, they can't even see through their eyes. They're so beat up. And at the end, one takes a punch. And the other one slugs. And they're, just, they're slugging. They're about to fall over. And we see this battle right here taking place not so much between the Israelites and the Pharaoh. We see it taking place between God and Pharaoh. God says, every punch you throw, I'm going to throw a better one. And I'm going to win this battle. And so what you find here is that this king of Egypt spoke in his Hebrew. He went to these midwives. He was going to actually kill. He had, he, you know, it says here, he, as we talked about, he would know good and evil. Well, his, his response to stopping this growth is to kill babies. He has no value for life. The only value he has in his own, his own life. There's no value for life in him. And so he's going like, we'll, just, we'll, we'll stop him from growing. We'll stop him from having children. And so, but it says here, we have another key word. Remember I said back in verse 7, but was the key word. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased. We see here in verse 17, but the midwives feared God. We see something developing here. You see, many people when they read this passage, they'll sometimes mistake it because it says back in verse 15, the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives. Well, these were not actually Hebrew midwives. It's actually translated women of Hebrew. These were midwives of women, of Hebrew women. And so what we have here is we have almost the Gentile population being affected by what? The Hebrew people. These were probably... Can you imagine a Pharaoh trusting in his plan to kill these babies and going to a Hebrew woman if they're growing and multiplying expecting them to kill their own children? No. So he's going to these Egyptians and he's going, okay, I need you to do this. I need you to kill these children when they're born. But it says here that these women fear God. How would they have feared God? How would they have even known who God is? They know God because of the Hebrew people. As much as they see these Hebrew people being oppressed and beaten and, and, and just their life just being almost torn apart, they see them what? Grow and multiply and trust. They're seeing it in them, much like the church needs to do today. The church needs to show that even when we're down, even when you're out, that you trust in God. And that's exactly what they see here. And so they obviously had known the real God. They had known the God of Joseph. They were knowing who the God of Joseph was. And it says they feared God, and they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. They were stepping up and doing something. They were being obedient. Many people, you know, Proverbs says, the beginning of knowledge, says the beginning of knowledge is, is, you know, when we fear God. And so what we have here is these people fearing God. They're being obedient. They're going to be, because they see that there's greater value in life than there is in listening to someone evil. Now, many people will take this passage here and try to twist it and say, well... You know, 
the Hebrew, because he goes back to them later and he says, you know, why have you done this? Why have you allowed the, the, these children to live? Many people say, well, this is just a prescription to lie. And it, we have an ethical problem here, don't we? No, we don't. They were doing what? They were obeying God and not what? Man. They were obeying God and not man. And many times that is what we're called to do. That's what being someone who fears God recognizes that they have to obey God and not man. Now, a key question that's asked here is that is this. It says, but the midwives fear God and did not. But then look what the Pharaoh says to them. Why have you done this thing? <clears throat> you know what I wish the church would have happened to it today? That more times people would come up to us and ask us, why have we done this? Have you ever noticed that? We, the, many times the church is no different than the world. They don't recognize any difference in what we do here and what they're doing out there. There's no reason to ask us the question, why have we done this? Why do we stand against abortion? Why do we stand against same-sex marriages? Why do we stand against these things? Why is it that we step up here and say, no, we don't want to do, we, we're against this, because we trust in the infallible, inerrant Word of God. But many times, that's the question you want to be asked. Why have you done this? Because when you're asked that question, then you can do what? They were able to give him a response here. They were able to say, And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come. He's saying there's something extraordinary happened with this. God is blessing these people. Whoever their God is, he's taking care of them. And you better think about honoring him too. But what are we going to do to get people to ask us the question, why have you done this? What are we going to do? That means we have to, and again, as I said, God's promises are fulfilled through the faithfulness of his people. But fearing God is about being obedient to what he has called us to do. What is it that he has called us to do? You know, you think about why have you done this? Think about the, the family that was in here before that's getting ready to head out to the mission field. You know, there are many of those families all across the world, and across, they're being affected by your Lottie Moon offering. But many times, I've heard of stories where their parents would come up to them because they would say this, why are you doing this? Why are you taking my grandbaby to a world where he's in danger? But is that not the question that people need to be asking us? Why have you done this? We need to be different than what culture presents. We need to be different because God has called us to be different. We need to be a people who fear God, who are, who are obedient to God. And it says here, if you see here, it started out, it says they feared God, but then it moves on, and he talked about the God providing for them. You know, they, they were having babies quicker than, than, than they could handle. And it says, therefore God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was because the midwives feared God that they trusted in him, it says here, that he provided households for them. And don't you see the beauty of this? Think back to Genesis 12, 1 through 3, where it says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing, and on all, you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is right here, the recognition that it's not just the Hebrew people that are going to be blessed, but the Gentile people. These, these Gentile midwives were what now? God was doing what with them? It says here that he provided households for them. Our God is a God for all people. For all people. But for all people to know Him, we have to do what? We have to teach and tell of Him. 
And so what, as members, I talked about at the very beginning of this sermon, there was a first commission to be fruitful and to multiply. But what we find here is that we see the great commission even in this text right here, where Jesus says, go therefore and make, you're baptizing them in the, in, in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Go baptizing, go therefore tell, go make disciples. It is a commandment. We are to be obedient to that commandment, to that commission. you have to always remember that there is going to be the paradox for the Christian. Because with us, where our blessings lie, also tough road lies ahead. A church will grow through pain. And as I see this text, I see the Great Commission stare me in the face, and then I think in to the story that I spoke to you about at the very beginning, about Sharif. Well, see, Sharif's story is not over where I finished it at the very beginning. Sharif took his coins from his mother, and he clothed himself, and then he headed off to a nearby city. In that city, he found a church, and he was baptized secretly because he was still in a situation there where people didn't... It, it, was, it, was, it was dangerous to be known as a Christian, especially a Muslim convert. But he went there... And he decided that his mission was going to be how he was going to embrace the conflict. Is that he was going to figure out a way to to go to Muslim nations and help them to receive the word of God without having to be extracted from their communities. So guess what Sharif does? He packs up his bags and he goes back home where people were more than likely going to try to kill him. He goes back home, still the same scenario. His father doesn't want to have anything to do with him. His father really wants to try to kill him, and nobody will speak to him except for one friend he had in grade school, back when he was in school, named Bilal. Bilal says, you can come and stay with me. You can live with me. You can, I'll put a, put a cot on my floor. And so he goes and he stays with his friend Bilal, and what happens is, is that he starts to, to share the New Testament with him. Bilal sees something differently in him. He sees a person who, who doesn't pray ritualistically like the, like the Muslims do. He sees someone who doesn't read his scriptures because he has to. He sees someone who truly loves the God of the Bible like these people love the God of the Bible. He sees that in him. And so he asks him questions and he's asking him. And so they, they, he shares the gospel with him. And, and Bilal accepts Christ. And so now there's Sharif and there's Bilal. But one day Bilal goes out, goes off to work. Well, here's the opportunity to get at Sharif. A soccer team was hired to beat him to kill him. They beat him up so bad to the point that his ribs were broken, blood coming out of his mouth, but a policeman saved it before they finally killed him. He eventually was also kind of cruised. They, they put him up on a cross, nailed him to a cross, but someone saved him there. But he was getting, he was just oppressed right there, just like you see these people in Egypt. But one thing that happens is he knew the promises of God, and guess what? He baptized two people in his lifetime. He baptized his friend, Bilal, and he baptized his father, who wanted to kill him. Today, that Muslim country has over 150,000 Christians in it. 150,000. Because one man was willing to 
trust in the gospel. To not just have Jesus as Savior, but have Jesus as Lord. And he was willing to fulfill the Great Commission. Is that not what we should be today? Are you willing today to go out and go wherever God calls you? Are you willing to do whatever He asks you to do? Are you willing to be the person that does something so somebody will ask you, why have you done this? Are you willing to be that person? Are you willing to be one who says, I want to see the church grow through pain? Will you pray with me?